I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Jeremiah. Today, we will be continuing our series and working through a couple chapters toward the middle of the book. But I want to begin, actually, in Jeremiah chapter 9 with the two most well-known verses of that chapter. That's the chapter we looked at last week. I want to read Jeremiah 9, verses 23 to 24. I want to start here. (laughs) Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Okay, now, there are a few things in in that verse I just want to highlight as we get started. Okay, first, did you notice how God says there are three things that he practices or exercises in the earth? God says, I am the Lord who practices or demonstrates steadfast love, sometimes translated mercy, justice, and righteousness in the land. And and then second, did you notice that these three things are not just things that God does. These are things that God delights in. God loves to act this way. And God loves to see these things practiced in the world that he has made. And then third, as I said last week, it's clear in these verses that the most important thing in life is that you know the Lord. And this is really the big problem throughout my chapter 9. Even though the people knew about the Lord, they did not actually know the Lord. That's what sets the stage for these verses. God warns his people. Don't trust in your wisdom or in your wealth or in your power. The only thing you should boast in or put your hope in is if you know me. Now, today, I want to think about a question related to this. And the question is, what does it look like when someone knows the Lord? Or we could ask the question this way. What are the signs that someone does or does not know the Lord? It's very common for us to talk about knowing the Lord. This is one of the ways that we describe Christians. Christians are people who know the Lord. And similarly, this is a common way to describe non-Christians. Perhaps you have a close friend or a family member who does not trust Jesus yet, and you're wanting to talk about them. How would you describe them? There could be lots of ways, but one way that's pretty common would be to say, they don't know the Lord. And this is a very biblical way to talk, because in the Bible, there are two kinds of people. There are those who know the Lord, and there are those who don't know the Lord yet. Now, I want to press in on this a little bit. Think about this. When we say that one person knows the Lord but that another person does not know the Lord, 
What exactly do we mean by that? What is the difference between the two people? Or to put it this way again, what are the signs that someone does or does not know the Lord? I think there are several things that may come to our minds. Here are two things we might think of right away. <clears throat> One is we might ask, well, does this person know the gospel message? That Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins on the cross and that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And then we might say, and does this person not just know that, does this person believe that message? Now, are those good answers to how we might know if someone knows the Lord? Yes, those are good answers. Without knowing the content of the gospel, without believing in that gospel, we cannot know the Lord. Yet at the same time, I think we might be missing something if this is all that we say about knowing the Lord. Okay. Now, why is that? It's because these answers, if you just took them on their own, tend to put the emphasis only on our intellect or on mental assent to something. Okay. And again, it's vital to know the content of the gospel and to assent to it. But when the Bible itself talks about knowing the Lord, it puts its emphasis also on at least two other things. The first is it puts the emphasis on having a relationship of trust and love with the Lord. That's what I emphasized from the end of the text last week. To know the Lord in the way Jeremiah is talking about is to have a relationship with the Lord of trust and love, where you truly lean on the Lord as your Savior and where you love him for all that he is. In other words, knowing the Lord is not merely mental. It is also relational. Okay, but the other aspect of knowing the Lord, which is very important in Jeremiah, is that knowing the Lord is transformational. Okay, to put that another way, those who truly know the Lord become like the Lord that they know and love. Okay, think of it this way. If we ask Jeremiah directly, what are the signs that someone knows the Lord? What would he say? What would he point to? He would not point merely to the mind, though that's part of the answer. He would also point to the life of the person. Does this person look like the Lord? Or to use the language of Jeremiah 9, does this person delight in the things that the Lord delights in? And by the way, can you remember what the Lord delights in in the text? There are three things. Steadfast love or mercy, justice, and righteousness. And today I want to explore that idea from the book of Jeremiah. And so now I want to go to Jeremiah chapter 21, and we're going to look at a uh, 21 to some of 23. Now, a couple months ago, I doubt you remember this, but you might remember this. <laughs> if you looked at this text in advance, you might thought, did we talk about some of this text at another time? We did talk about some of this text 
in our study of the king. This is where Jeremiah speaks to one son of David after another. And what's his basic message to all of them? The sons of David are going down. The Davidic family tree is about to be chopped down to the roots. But then, after that horrible news in Jeremiah 22, maybe remember that Jeremiah announces the best news, some of the best news in the whole book, in Jeremiah 23, that after David's dynasty has fallen, God promises to raise up one more righteous branch for David. A new and better son of David will come, and when he comes, he will reign in righteousness and justice forevermore. And by the way, if you don't know yet, that person has come, and his name is Jesus. So we have seen some of this section before, but today our focus is going to be different. I want to focus today on the sins of the sons of David. So that might seem pretty negative. Eventually this will become positive. But I want to focus on the, the sins of the sons of David. What were their biggest failures? Why did they get one message after another? It's all bad. Okay? So let's get to it. We'll start in Jeremiah chapter 21 with Jeremiah's message to the very last king of Judah, King Zedekiah. Okay, now here's, here's how the chapters go. Okay, they begin at the end with the word of the Lord to the last king. Okay, and then as you go forward in the text, you go back in time. And you get to hear, one by one, the messages Jeremiah preached over many years to the different sons of David. Okay? So look at Jeremiah 21, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. Now, that is the setting for this word from the Lord. You might not follow it immediately, okay, but this scene is at the very end of Jeremiah's ministry. King Zedekiah has been rebelling against the Lord for a decade. He has ignored pretty much everything Jeremiah has ever told him. Okay. But now, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is actually at the gates of the city. And so what does he do? He realizes there is no way to escape. And so what does he do? He sends two of his guys over to Jeremiah to ask him to do what? Jeremiah, could you perhaps go and talk with the Lord for us? And, and maybe ask the Lord to do one of those awesome things he used to do in the past for us, like maybe what he did in Egypt. Now, could you just ask him to do that for us? We would really, really appreciate that. Okay? Now, what does Jeremiah think about this? What does God think about this? Look at verse 3. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched arm, 
outstretched hand. Remember, that's like the language of the Exodus. That's, that's what God did to Egypt. He stretched out his arm to fight against Egypt. And now he's saying, I'm going to do that against you in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And God says, I'm going to hand you over to Nebuchadnezzar, who will have no mercy on you. God is not very interested, apparently, in this last-minute request for a miracle. Okay? But Zedekiah isn't the only one God speaks to in the text. Look at verse 8. And to this people you shall say, thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine and pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live and will have his life as a prize of war. For I've set my face against this city for harm and not for good. And we've, we've maybe heard that message before as well in the series. This is this offer of hope to all the people that even on the brink of death, if they'll submit to God's servant, in this, in this case Nebuchadnezzar, and put their trust in the promise of God and surrender, they will live. Now, that's just the introduction to the section. From here on, we're going to start to learn what God always wanted from the king and what they always failed, what these guys at least always failed to give him. So look at Jeremiah 21, verse 11. And did the house of the king of Judah say, Hear the word of the Lord. O house of David, thus says the Lord, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. Okay. This is at the heart of what God always wanted from the king. Execute justice. Now, what did that mean, or what would that look like? Okay, this is going to be developed throughout all of the text today. Okay, but you get a hint already in this verse. Look at verse 12 again. O house of David, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor, the one who's been robbed. God's kings were supposed to have a heart for justice. And what would it look like to execute justice? That would involve rescuing the needy from their oppressors. That's what God, the true king, had done for his own people in the Exodus. God, and he had continued to do that. God rescued his people time and time again from their oppressors, and this is what God wanted from his kings. Execute justice, rescue those who have been robbed. Now go to Jeremiah chapter 22. This is basically a collection of the things Jeremiah said over many years to the different kings. Look at Jeremiah 22, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah. Speak there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the 
resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Now, that's very similar right, to what we, just, what we just read. Some of it is like exactly the same. But did you notice the new things? Okay. One, this isn't just a message to the king. Did you see that? This is also a message to his servants and to all the people. In other words, the call to execute justice isn't only to the king, though the king would have a unique role and opportunity to do that. It's for, the call, though, is for everyone to pursue this, to love this. And second, Jeremiah shows us more clearly here what doing justice looks like. He begins with the exact same words, deliver from the hand of the oppressor, him who has been robbed. But he doesn't stop there this time. He adds, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Okay, do you see the connection between doing righteousness and caring for the vulnerable? Between doing justice and defending the life of the innocent. Okay, this is near and dear to the heart of God. Throughout the law of Moses and really the whole Bible, God has a special concern for the vulnerable. Okay, that's why the three groups are highlighted. The foreigner, the orphans, and the widows. Those were the three most vulnerable groups in society. Those were the people who could most easily be exploited. They were the kind of people you could easily take advantage of. And God knew that. And so what did God want from his king and from his people? God wanted his people to protect the vulnerable instead of preying on them. And God wanted his people to never shed innocent blood. This, I think, is something like God's vision for a just society. You would have a just king who fought for these things, and you would have a just people who practiced these things. The foreigner would be cared for, not exploited. The orphans would be looked after, not abandoned. And the widows would be defended, not neglected. And all life would be honored and cherished, both by the king and the people. Wouldn't you love to live in a land like that? Now, let's go down in the text to one more of Jeremiah's messages to the kings. It starts in verse 11. It's the message about the first son of Josiah to rule after Josiah. Okay, this guy's name in the text is Shalom. He's better known by another name, Jehoahaz. He did not last long, three months. Okay? But he reigned long enough to show that he was nothing like his dad. Okay, to see what he was like, we'll pick up in verse 13. Okay. 22, 13. 
This is about that, this guy. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. I'm not sure what vermilion is. I think it's red, right? I think it's red, okay? This is a description of how Josiah's son ruled. The woe is on him. How would you describe his reign? He did not do justice. Instead, what did he do? He built his house through injustice, the text says. Well, what did that look like? In this case, it seems like he used forced labor, and not just that, he didn't even pay wages to his workers. So in essence, this would be like slave labor. And why did he do this? Because he wanted an awesome house. He wanted to live in luxury. He wanted to look like a great king. And this is still often the case with many governing authorities around the world today who use their power to dominate their people for their own luxury. Not much has changed in the world. But the thing you have to remember here is that this is not just any king. This is the king from Judah. This is a son of David. This is the king, the one king, who is supposed to represent God's kingship on earth. And this leads us to the most powerful part of our text today. Jeremiah 22, verse 15. God asks him, do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father, this is Josiah, eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? And then it was well with him. What did Josiah do? He judged the cause of the poor and needy, and then it was well. And listen to this question from God. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. From God's point of view, what is being a king all about? Is it to have a huge palace, to live in luxury, to look like an awesome king? God doesn't care about any of those things. God says more or less, to this man, don't you remember your dad? Josiah did justice and righteousness. And I took care of everything else in the kingdom. I took care of him. Now, what did it look like for Josiah to do justice and righteousness? He judged the cause of the poor and needy. And if you consider verse 17 as well, you could add, he was not greedy he did not shed innocent blood. He did not oppress the weak. From God's point of view, that's what it looked like for a king to do justice. And what is the question that pulls the whole sermon together? It's when God asks, isn't this what it means 
to know me. To know the Lord is more than something mental. It is relational and it is transformational. Those who know the Lord become like the Lord that they trust and love. Those who know the Lord begin to delight in the things that the Lord delights in. And what does the Lord say that he delights in? Mercy, justice, and righteousness, which is all over this text today. Josiah delighted in those things. And what does God say? Isn't that what it means to know me? That was a man who knew me. So if we ask Jeremiah, what are the signs that someone knows the Lord? What would he say? He would not point merely to the mind, though that's part of the answer. He would point to the life. He would say, does this person look like the Lord? Does this person delight in the things that the Lord delights in? Specifically, mercy, justice, and righteousness. Now, now what we've seen today, I, I, took this, I decided just to focus on one text today. This is all over Jeremiah, and this is all over the prophets. Okay, this, is, this is a message that you could have found in many, many other places, but this one's really uh, focused on this topic. God wanted his king and his people to love what he loved. Mercy, justice, righteousness. Now, question, does God still want that today? What do you think? Yes, right? God, God still wants this. Okay. Now, how exactly does that play out in our lives? In a different society, different governing structures? That, I think, to answer that fully for each of us will likely require you to think hard and to reflect and to pray about exactly what that might look like. It's probably not going to look exactly the same for every person, and that's okay. But we can say this with confidence. God still delights justice and righteousness. And we can also say this with confidence. God still wants all who know him to delight in those very same things. Okay, but I don't want to leave it there. Okay, I want, even though I, can't, I know I can't touch base on all that could be said, I want to at least help us to start thinking down some different paths here that maybe you could ponder more on your own. Okay, one thing that is clear is that doing mercy or justice or living a righteous life is not just a private matter. It's not something you can do in isolation. Like just withdraw and be in your home and live this way by yourself. It demands that you're around other people in some sort of community where you can exercise mercy and do justice and this sort of thing. Okay, showing mercy, doing justice involves others. Looking out for others, defending the vulnerable, coming to the aid of those in need. And though we don't have time to develop this, as we saw in the reading from 1 John earlier, 
this is one of the ways that we know that we really have come to know him. Think of what John said. When we see a brother in need and we have the means to help, do we open our heart in mercy toward him or do we shut our hearts against him? Okay. Much more could be said about that. You see that a lot throughout the New Testament. But I want to focus in on, on one specific area of application. There could have been many, but just, and it's not so much just to focus on this one thing, but to try to give an example of how maybe we could think through some of these. Okay. So this text, I think, sheds light on what a God-honoring government should look like. Now, let me be clear. I am not suggesting that the US or any nation today is exactly the same as Israel was at this time. But that doesn't mean we can't learn from texts like this about what God wants to see in those who have power. God wants to see leaders who do what? Who exercise justice and righteousness. In God's vision of a just society, there would be leaders who are not greedy, who serve the people rather than their own interest, who defend the vulnerable in their community rather than take advantage of them, and who, above all, protect human life. Now, we might say, yeah, I wish that I lived in a place like that. But I don't see a whole lot of that in governments here or elsewhere. So like, what should we do if that's the case? And that is the question, right? There is no one-size-fits-all answer. But here's some of how I've been thinking through this, OK? First, start general. First, I know, I know, I should pray more for my governing authorities to do justice, to rule like this, to be like this. We should pray more about this. Second, where, and again, just general, where we have opportunities in our own context to have a voice, whether that's through voting or other kinds of involvement, we should seek to promote these values because this is what God values. And so then to try to go from that and bring down to one specific recent example. Okay. And, and if you come here a lot, you know, I don't typically comment so directly on like specific government things or whatever. But just to try to think through this in terms of one specific example from just the last couple weeks. We have had some legislation passed recently in our state that runs directly against what God values, particularly when it comes to defending and protecting the most vulnerable part of our population, namely the unborn boys and girls. Some of the laws passed recently in our state basically allow the killing of the unborn all the way up to birth. 
this is unjust. This is evil. What can we do in a situation like this, where we know that many in our own government are pushing hard against what God delights in? Again, there are no easy answers, no one-size-fits-all answers. It will look different for different people. But here's just some ideas of what I've been thinking about. In terms of the government, we can all pray. We can plead with God to change the hearts of our leaders. We can all do that. Beyond that, we may go different ways. Some may choose to get more involved directly by writing, calling. Others may run for office who know the Lord. Others may focus on other paths of action, thinking if there's no hope that way. Some may choose to respond by spending more time at places where the unborn are killed, praying and pleading with parents not to do such things. Others may try to help support Christian crisis pregnancy centers, which their whole purpose is to come alongside parents in hard spots and try to help them. Some may more actively pursue adoption. So there would always be a place for any child to be loved and welcomed into this world and cared for. Some may come alongside the friend or the coworker who's unexpectedly pregnant and doesn't know what to do. And there could be many other things as well. My point in discussing this is not so much to call us to one specific set of action, but rather to, to encourage us that the impulse toward mercy and justice and righteousness, toward defending the vulnerable, protecting life, is a good impulse. Act on it. The Lord delights in these things. And so don't be surprised if you delight in these things too. This is what knowing the Lord does to us. It transforms us so that we begin to delight in what the Lord finds delight. Now, there is much more that could be said that I hope this study will lead you to think about. But I don't want to leave without reflecting on how this study ultimately leads us to Jesus. In the end, the study of doing justice should lead us ultimately to Jesus. Why? And, and I won't take long on this, but just some simple thoughts. One, Jesus is exactly the kind of king we need. He is the king that is described in all the good ways in this passage. And he saw us in our need and in our weakness, and he had mercy on us. He did not stay where he was. He came to us to rescue us in our need and affliction. And the last thing Jesus was, was greedy. He came not to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the only 
truly righteous king who has ever lived. Second, Jesus is the only answer for all our unrighteous deeds. One thing we likely saw today is how we so often fail to live righteously in the way this text talks about it. Of course, we fail to honor God in our private lives, for sure. I'm sure you have failed in various ways in your private life to honor the Lord this week. But today has been far more focused on our lives with others. We often fail to love others like we should, to show mercy when there's an opportunity, to defend the vulnerable when we know we should, to come to the aid of the hurting when we see them in their pain. And the truth is that sometimes we don't delight in what God delights in. But also the truth is that at other times, we have the right impulse and we fail to act on it. Perhaps some of those failures have come to mind today. Let them lead you to Jesus. He is the only answer for our unrighteous deeds. Jesus, the just, died for the unjust. And then lastly, I hope this study has stirred your heart for the return of the king. Though we should promote justice, mercy, wherever we can, whenever we can, we should remember our ultimate hope is not here in this age. Our hope in the age to come. We wait for the day when there will be a new and better king ruling over a new and better people in a new and better land. We wait for what God told us to wait for in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, when he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and deal wisely, and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. The son of David came once to deal with our sins, and he's coming soon to make all things new. And on that day, God's vision for a just society will become reality. On that day, justice will roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful heart, your character. You are a God of beauty, perfect in all your ways, full of mercy, a God who always does what's right, who always acts justly. You are a God who delights in these things. We thank you for bringing us to know you into a relationship of trust and love with you. And I pray that more and more you will help us as your people to delight in what you delight in and to put it into practice. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as, as we admit that life is complicated. We, we do not always know what to do in society or in our workplaces or in our homes. We, 
We often have, by your spirit, very good desires, and yet we don't always know how to act, what to do. And so I pray even for, for wisdom and courage, and that together, as your people, we may let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and come to glorify you, our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.